loveliness to people from different races, national backgrounds, ethnicities coming together. It is central to God's heart, far more central than most people realize, and that's what I want to be speaking on here uh, this morning. Uh, In fact, I'm I'm going to give a little mini message uh, to set the groundwork for uh, Brenda Salter McNeil to come, and uh, we've actually asked her to partner with us for a couple of years to help us move forward on this. God, God's heart is for people to be brought together. The cross of Jesus Christ reconciles us all to God, but also is meant to reconcile us to one another. And racial reconciliation is a central part of that. Now, it's not one that most people uh, have heard a lot about. We preach a whole lot about our reconciliation with God, a me and Jesus thing. But the passion of God for reconciliation with one another on every level, but certainly including as a central component, the racial level, that is not as much preached. And that's why when we talk about it much, a lot of people, it's foreign to them, and they're wondering, why do we keep talking about this? For some people actually get offended. I was just thinking here during the service, uh, during the worship service, it just kind of came to me that Jesus said, blessed are you when you're not offended in me. Uh, and what it tells me is that when, when, when the full gospel is preached, rather than just part of it that it, we're comfortable with, when the full gospel is preached, it can cause offense. In fact, I wonder if, if maybe, uh, if you go to church and are never offended, I'd worry that the church isn't preaching the gospel. Uh, it, it, it ought to be the kind of thing where you either get mad and walk away or you change. That, that, that's the power of the gospel. Blessed is the one who's not offended. Based on things in the last month, I think I'm doing a good job. <laughs> all right. That's all right, though. You know, it, it's, uh, we, we don't want to soft pedal anything. I want us just, I, I'm going to review something here because, because this has not been frequently preached. Um, a lot of people uh, file it under the category of, of sort of liberal or racial reconciliation as a PC thing or it's a, a Greg thing or it's a norm thing or, you know, it, it's some, and they don't see how this is absolutely central to the heart of God and central to the gospel and therefore has to be central to any ministry that wants to preach the whole gospel. So I'm going to review very quickly here a foundation, a biblical foundation, uh, showing that this is central to God's heart. Uh, I'll do it by overviewing, I'll call it six moments in biblical history. The first moment is the creation, when God creates human beings. God makes every species of animal after its kind, the Bible says, and then he made human beings. He says, let us make uh, humankind in our own image. Our kind is to be in the image of God, but I want us to notice that there's only one kind. There's only one kind. There's one human race, and we're all in this together, and we all reflect the image of God. God didn't create us divided. He created us united in one humanity. But sin entered the world, and as sin always does, it divides people. The minute sin enters the world in Genesis 3, you, you find Adam and Eve being divided. They're blaming one another for the fall. And then you find Cain and Abel being divided. And then in in Genesis 4, you find that people become warriors and they start warring against one another. Sin always causes division. And it caused racial division starting in in, uh, Genesis chapter 11. There we find that humanity was united enough to try to, they rallied around building this idolatrous tower, which really represents all false religion, which is always uh, uh, the attempt of human beings to work their way to God. 
And so God there extended the curse of the fall to humanity. And this was the curse of Babel. He confused their languages and, and, and spread them apart so they wouldn't be united in this idolatrous way. It was a provisional thing that God did. It was never meant to be permanent, but it's a part of the fall. It's part of the curse. This was the beginning of babbling. The word actually comes from Babel when God confused the languages. And we have to understand that it's part of the curse. And any time a person talks in a way that reflects the curse as though it was normative, as though it was supposed to be there, they are continuing the legacy of Babel. They are babbling. For example, there's a big school of thought out there that says that if you want to build a big church, uh, don't try to be multicultural. Uh, be homogenous because you see people just get uncomfortable when they have to be around people who don't look like them and don't worship like them and that sort of thing. So, so stick to homogeny. Uh, just have one target group and go with that. That is babbling. That is babbling. They'll tell you that the way to, to shrink a church is to try to make it multi-ethnic. You know, that may be true, but it's still babbling because <laughs> that's not God's heart. See, people will say, well, it's just not natural that, that a black person and a white person would ever get married. That, that's just not the way it's supposed to be. You're babbling. You're just babbling. You're carrying on the legacy of Babel. That's part of the curse. That's not part of redemption. One time, a couple of years ago, a person arguing with me said, well, you know, it's even, it's even part of nature. You know, red roosters and white roosters never get along. They're always pecking at each other. And I said, well, that, I didn't say this. I thought this. That's great if you're as dumb as a rooster, but we're made in the image of God. <laughs> you see, there's a little higher calling. We aren't here to preach the gospel of chickens, all right? Uh, that was the Tower of Babel. But you got to know that God had to do that as a provisional thing. It's a curse thing. But God immediately set in motion things that would reunite us. And so I want us to see that when God raised up Israel, and this is so rarely seen, one of the jobs, in fact, a central job of Israel was to be the servant of the world. And in being the servant of the world, they were to win the world to allegiance to Yahweh and reunite the world, bring the world together uh, under Yahweh to reverse Babel. And so, for example, when God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he says, among other things, this to him, right off the get-go, Abraham, through you all the families of the world will be blessed. I'm not just going to bless your descendants. I want to do that. I want to make them a special nation. But the reason I want them to be a special, holy, sanctified nation is that through them, all the families, all the tribes, all the different people groups that have resulted from this, this curse, I will bring them back together and they will be blessed. It says in Isaiah chapter 49, the Lord says to Israel, I give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. They were to be the light of the world, the mustard seed that would live in the entire world so God could recover the one humanity that he had made in the beginning. In Psalm 22, it says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. This is what God's always been hungry for. And all the families of the nations shall worship before me. He wants a humanity that, that is united under him. It's always God's been, it's, it's always been God's heart. Israel, so much like the church, and hear this now, Israel never really got that message, and God had to chastise them over and over and over again for that. Israel, very much like the church, forgot about their call to the world. Israel, very much like the church today, saw their unique standing before God as sort of, we're the special people, we're God's favorites, we have special privileges, and they began to look down on the world rather than serving the world. 
We've got to know that the call of God on Israel and the call on the God of God on the church today is to serve the world, come under the world, replicate Calvary to the world, and thereby win them over to Jesus Christ and in Christ have a one new humanity. Amidst all of its beautiful diversity that reflects the image of God to have them united. Now you see this really come to full force in the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus and the atonement, the cross of Jesus, reflect the fourth moment showing God's heart for, for reconciliation. Everything about Jesus was about reuniting humanity. He broke about every social taboo you could break in the ancient world. He talked and fellowshiped with Samaritans. He, he, he ministered to a, to a woman from Canaan. Uh, he ministered to a Roman centurion. The Jews hated Romans, and if they hated anyone more than average Romans, it was Roman military leaders. That's who a Roman centurion was. But Jesus says of this Roman centurion, he heals his servant and then says, I've never seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And that didn't win him any points with the, with, with the other Israelites. But God never called us to win points, <laughs> never called us to be popular. Blessed is the one who's not offended in me. And so Jesus here crosses that, 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 that divide. And he fellowships with tax collectors and prostitutes and the poor and people from every walk of life. But you really see the heart, the pulse of God. As in all areas, you see God's pulse on the cross. This defines what God is like. And when Jesus spilled his blood on the cross to reconcile us to God, he spilled his blood to reconcile us with one another. And he added the bullseye of that racial reconciliation. And so the Bible says this in Ephesians 2. Listen very carefully. Paul is here using the divide between Jews and Gentiles. How ironic, because the Jews were supposed to heal the divide between Jews and Gentiles and all other people groups, but they became the paradigm of the divide, Jews and Gentiles. And so here it says, He is our peace. Jesus is our peace, Jews and Gentiles. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one. Everybody say one. And he has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. That's what he did when he died. That's why he spilled his blood, to break down that wall, that hostility. That he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two through the cross. The cross creates a new humanity. The cross birth, births a new humanity. And when it births this new humanity... This humanity that is identified with Jesus Christ and therefore doesn't get its life or identity from any ethnic association. That's how it tears down that dividing wall. Uh, he, he, when he bursts that new humanity, he puts to death the hostility that, uh, uh, that, that, that existed there. That's the dividing wall. We're here to preach everything for which Jesus died. In fact, we are, as we've been saying over and over again, week after week, we're called to mimic Jesus, to shadow Jesus, be imitators of God, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. We're to bleed for everyone that Jesus bled for. We're to bleed for every cause that Jesus bled for, and Jesus bled for this. It's, we so often hear people preaching about salvation, individual salvation, because Jesus died for that. That's a good thing to preach. And we hear people often preaching about uh, healing and deliverance, emotional and relational healing and physical healing because Jesus died for that, and that's a good thing to preach. But what we need to understand is right up there with the big three is, is uh, uh, the three things he died for. The individual salvation, the healing, and the reconciliation right there in the text. He died for this. And if Jesus died for it, then it is a mandate. It is a, an urgent, urgent call on the people of God to manifest everything Jesus died for. 
But see, this one is going to cost us something. This one forces us to move out of our comfort zone. This means you're going to have to learn to like worship music that maybe you naturally don't like. It may mean that you're going to have to go places you otherwise wouldn't go. And you're going to have to learn about different cultures where it's easier not to do this. And maybe that's why this one, is, this one isn't preached as much as salvation and as, as healing. But it's got to be preached. Amen? This is the center of the gospel. This is the heartbeat of God. This isn't a peripheral, marginal, uh, occasional, you know, kind of secondary thing. This is the heart of God. And if we're going to preach the whole gospel, this has got to be at the center of it. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, as many as of you have, has, have been baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourself with Christ. There is, therefore, because you're clothed in Jesus Christ, we see each other in Jesus Christ. We see ourselves in Jesus Christ. We see God in Jesus Christ. And because of that, there's no longer any Jew. There's no longer any Gentile. Those categories for, the king, for kingdom people, those categories which are so big, so huge, so divisive in the world, they mean nothing to us. They mean nothing to us. We don't see the diversity of humanity as a problem. We see it as a beautiful thing and as an opportunity to manifest the kingdom of God. And so there's no longer any Jew or Gentile. For all of us are one in Jesus Christ. The church has got to manifest that oneness. The church has got to manifest that unity. That's part of why we exist, to, to, to do things that the world's not capable of doing. That's to happen right here. And the sixth moment of, of this uh, biblical narrative that showed the heart of God has to do with the ultimate vision of the kingdom. And this isn't something, this ultimate vision of the kingdom found in the book of Revelation isn't something that we're to be waiting for. The book of Revelation is as much about the present as it is about the future. It's what the church is to be bringing into being now. And so it says this in Revelation 7, After this, John said, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, I love that, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice. In all of their diversity, they were saying the same thing. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the vision. That is what we're called to be. Amen? Our job. Our job is to say, okay, we got to be that now. We got to be moving towards that now. If you wonder why we have a whole worship service of Latino music uh, once in a while, that's why. If you wonder why we, we mix it up a little bit in terms of musical styles, sure, if you're not used to it, it, it may be hard for you to find the beat. You may be wondering, you know, not, but see, our job is to manifest the future in the present. <laughs> and, and, and this is why we, it is a good in and of itself, it's a beautiful thing in and of itself. Now, the trouble is, is we got a whole lot of Babel in our, in, in our blood. We've been socially conditioned as babblers. And so there's a part of us that gets offended if it's not what we like and gets offended if, if we don't quite understand it and gets offended if it's not quite our way and we interpret things through our grid and think that that's too loud and that's too soft and you're too close or you stand too far or you dress funny or whatever. And we got to de-babify de ourselves, all right? We need a Holy Spirit de-babbling, all right? Get the babble out of you. I cast the spirit of babble out of you right now. <laughs> Be loosed. <laughs> Woo! All right. All right. And somebody just got offended. But, you know, <laughs> blessed is the one who's not offended. Revelation 21, And the city has no need of sun, the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light. And, oh, I can't wait for that day to be fully manifested, but we're to be doing it now. And its lamp is the Lamb. 
and the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. I love that, which means the gates will never be shut. People will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Here's a kingdom thing. Learn how to see the glory and the honor of the nations. The people group is what, 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 is what it means. Uh, we, we, we saw, studies have shown this, that we tend to see as beautiful and honoring what looks like us. Even in terms of people of phenotype, you know, this is beautiful and that's not beautiful. But when God gets a hold of your heart, I, I've seen this happen in my life. Uh, uh, there's such a beauty, there's such a beauty, a radiance, uh, a gorgeousness, a loveliness and the difference, uh, the, the people I was seeing on, on uh, uh, Monday as they came in here, I just marveled at their beauty. It made me cry. There's a glory there. And see, the kingdom needs uh, th that diversity. We need you in the kingdom to reflect the full glory of God, to reflect that vision. Every unique people group, like every unique individual, we have our own way, like a prism, of reflecting the light of God's glory. We're going to reflect it in a unique way. But the kingdom is about all those unique ways of being reflected coming together. And together it just displays this radiant diamond of undiluted love that is the kingdom of God. And now the one humanity that God created and the one new humanity that God's always been driving for becomes manifested. The job of the kingdom of kingdom people is to be doing that here and now. One more verse I want to leave with you. There's a river that runs through the center of the city, and it says in Revelation 22, on either side of the river is the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There's a river of life that runs through the city, and the trees of life come out of that river. The river, of course, is Jesus Christ. And all who drink from that river are the trees of life. And part of what the fruit, the leaves we're to be producing, is the healing of the nation. The reversing of Babel. The ministering of wounds that have, have, have gone on. This isn't a secondary thing, a politically correct thing, a liberal thing, and anything. It's a God thing. It's a central God thing, and that's what we're about. Praise God. And now I want to turn this uh, tag team message over to my, my dear friend, one of my favorite people in the entire universe. We, we, we brought her on to partner with us to ask, to ask the question. She's an expert on this. How do we do this? This is hard. How do we do this? In fact, I missed one of those moments, didn't I? I just realized it. The Spirit of God coming on the church. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes down the day of Pentecost, reverses, reverses the Tower of Babel, and that's why it's evidenced by the speaking in tongues. And the whole book of Acts, that's why I just thought of it right now, the whole book of Acts is, is uh, about the Holy Spirit working in the church to get people to ask the question, how do we do this? This isn't easy. The, the, the healing stuff and the salvation stuff, that's easy. This is difficult. You know, I, I, the customs, how, how do we get along with this thing? Well, that we want to be a book of Acts church. We want to be a spirit church. We want to be a kingdom church. And so we've asked Brandon to come on and help us work through this, talk through this. So I want to turn this over to the Reverend Doctor, my friend, Brenda Salter McNeil. Amen. Give her a welcome. <laughs> I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison doors, sets the captive free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Do you know it? I've got a river of life flowing. 
can it do? The lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison doors, sets the captive free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up a well within my That's my prayer today and make me whole. Spring up, oh well, and give to me that life abundantly. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison doors, sets the captive free. I'm so glad that I've got a river of life flowing out of so spring up oh well that's what i want within my soul spring up oh well do it for me god and make me whole spring up oh well and give to me can't speak for you, but that's my desire. The Bible says that when we got born again, every single, of us, single one of us were given on the inside of us a well of living water. And unfortunately, many of us know that, but we don't know what it's for. I want to announce today that that water inside of us is not just for our own personal refreshment. It is for that, but not just for that. It's supposed to become a river of life that God causes us to become liquid. We become liquid love that flows from this place, become the presence of God in the earth. So much so that wherever we go, healing takes place. Where divisions are, healing takes place in those divisions. Where brokenness is, healing takes place in that brokenness. That's why we've been given this river of life. And so I am so thankful for what we just heard. I'm excited. There are days that I feel like, God, I wish I could get the church to catch on fire. I see some of you looking at me like this, and I'm thinking, oh, God, help me, Jesus. Help me, Lord. I really pray that you have come to engage God, not to make a judgment about listening to a person's preach, but that you've come to experience God. In the back, I hope that you're really here, mind, body, soul here. I can feel it when a congregation is present, and I can feel when they're sort of not. And I just really pray that you're here because God wants to use us. We are God's best-kept secret. We are the church, <laughs> the called out ones, amen, and we're supposed to be the church, and I pray now that I'll be able to tag with my brother and answer the question based upon all that we've heard from the word of God, what then must we do? How do we live out this calling that we've been challenged to understand is at the very center of God's heartbeat.
Well, I'm glad you asked. And, and, and if I just preach to myself, I will. I'll, I'm going to have fun preaching to me. <laughs> I want to talk about the river of life that God uses to cause us to cross cultures and build bridges. And so I'm going to be reading out of one of my favorite texts in Scripture. I invite your attention to John chapter 4 on the screens overhead. This is what the Word of God says. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. They have a long conversation after that, and then the disciples come back. And in verse 28, this is what the word of God says. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. This is what the word of God says. Amen. And we're thankful. Amen. John chapter 4, I believe, becomes a template, a paradigm of what reconciliation looks like. I agree wholeheartedly with Greg that more than one thing happened when Jesus came and brought the cross into this situation. Yes, this woman was reconciled to God, but also a man and a woman, a Jew and a Samaritan, were reconciled that same day in that same act at the cross. In this one text, we get to see the whole gospel. And I want to preach to you some principles that I think are for those of us who want to be the liquid church, for those of us who want to be the river of life that, are, that bring the healing of nations to wherever we show up. As I look at what it looks like, as I think about what this river does when it wells up in us and overflows our banks, I begin to recognize that if we look at Jesus, we get to see step by step what this could look like. Now let me, before I finish this, let me say this. I've got nine to ten principles. My guess is that I'm going to get through four of them or so. 
Now, this is subversive on my part because it's how I get myself invited back. <laughs> we got to do what we got to do. <laughs> so I'm going to leave you hanging, but I'll be back in February. Now, you got to stay in there, try to live the, last, the next four, see if you can't live those, and then I'll come back and add to our wealth of information. That's a deal? Principle number one. The Bible says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. I believe that reconciliation requires a divine mandate from God. This had to go through Samaria. When I read that for the first time, I had to stop and pause at that one three-letter word. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, I read the Bible in a very dialogical, interactive way, and I said to myself, he didn't have to go through Samaria. No other Jew went through Samaria. Jews avoided Samaria. So why did Jesus have to do what no other Jew would ever do? Jews avoided Samaria like the plague. They didn't want to get caught dead in Samaria. There were all kinds of ways to get around Samaria. Jesus didn't have to geographically go through Samaria. Jews went around Samaria. We know about that, right? They built freeways to help us not go in that neighborhood. Amen. It can take us all the way around and we never get in there. So it was with the Jews. They would go around a curvaceous, mountainous road. It was so curvaceous, in fact, that thieves and thugs and robbers would lie wait for unsuspecting travelers and they would ambush them because you couldn't see who was coming around the mountain. But Jews would take their chances with thieves and robbers and thugs instead of taking the more direct route through Samaria. That's why the story of the Good Samaritan is so mind-boggling. This is a guy that's helping someone who he knows the only reason why he's been beat up on this road is because he wouldn't go through his neighborhood. He knows that when he bends down to help this guy and extends himself to such a far extent to help him, he knows that if that guy wasn't unconscious, he'd spit in his face. The good Samaritan, that's the kingdom. And so Jesus says he had to go through Samaria. Well, I beg to differ. Jesus didn't theologically have to go through Samaria. There were all kinds of pharisaical rules to keep you from going into Samaria. They felt justified to avoid Samaritans. Those were half-breed biracial dogs. That's how the Jews thought of Samaritans. They got defiled if they got around Samaritans. So he didn't have to theologically go. He didn't geographically have to go. He didn't sociologically have to go. He didn't politically have to go. He's already in trouble. That's why he's leaving where he was and trying to get out of town. It would have been every reason for him not to go through Samaria. But the reason why he had to go through Samaria is because Jesus had to do what no other Jew did because he already told us that he came to earth to do the will of his father. That's what the Bible says. Jesus says, hey, don't be confused about me. My agenda is set by the father. I don't do what everybody else has to do. Sociology doesn't set my agenda. My agenda is set by what the father requires of me. I feel like preaching. I felt it all of a sudden. <laughs> yes. 
Politics doesn't set, sets, uh, d determine what I do and don't do. I'm not politically driven. I'm not sociologically driven. I'm driven by the mandate of God on my life. I do what God wants me to do. I have to because God the Father wants me to. So I ask you, when's the last time you had a had to? When's the last time God put something on your heart that people in your family said, don't do it? And you said, I have to. When your friends on campus said, yo, man, you don't have to do that. And you said, yo, man, I do. When's the last time that your friends wouldn't go, but you had to go? Kingdom people, liquid people, the river of life goes where other people don't have to go, but something on the inside compels us to go. Reconciliation begins with a divine mandate from God. The second thing I notice in this text is that reconciliation requires a real need for people who are different from us. The Bible says in this text that when Jesus sat down by the well, he was tired from his journey. He has traveled by foot in Middle Eastern desert sun. He has walked a long distance. It is 12 o'clock noon, so it is high noon. The sun is at its highest peak. He has walked a long distance. He is in the middle of the desert. And when he sits down by that well, he's not kidding around. He is tired and he is really thirsty. So when this woman comes to the well, he's not thinking about some cute conversation starter. Yeah, he's not trying to have some cross-cultural conversation just to show that he's really politically correct. That he's trying to cross cultures and be real nice. He's thirsty and needs water. And even though she's sarcastic, she's right. He doesn't have a bucket. <laughs> I don't think he made it up. I don't think he was being bogus. Sometimes when people see somebody from another race or ethnicity, we try to think of some way to bridge a conversation with them, don't we? And so we think of conversation starters. I like your hair. I'm glad you do. <laughs> but that's not a real need conversation, is it? No. There are kinds of things that we can say that come out of curiosity, but they have nothing to do with the need to know. Jesus says, if you really want to be a reconciler, begin by understanding that you need that person that you're about to talk to, that they have a glass of water that you need a drink from. That they may not have gone to the finest seminary, but they do have water. <laughs> that you really are thirsty and that there's something that they bring to the party that you really need. And so that when they come to your conferences, when they attend your church, when they show up, they show up recognizing that they've got something that you need. And Jesus says, real reconcilers understand that. When I travel the country and I preach about reconciliation on college campuses and in churches and, and conferences, oftentimes I'll be asked, how can we get more, and you fill in the blank, African-American people, Latino people, Filipino people, Native American people, Laotian people, Haitian people, whatever. How can we get more people, those people to come to our group? And with as much love as I can muster, I'll ask this question. Why do you need them? Very few people have an answer to that question. 
they'll stammer for a while and then they'll say about how wonderful it would be and how nice it would be and how good it would be to have diversity. And I think that what Jesus suggests here with his real need for water is that reconciliation can't be nice, it must be necessary. People are tired of being nice. People would like to be necessary. And we can tell when we're necessary. I can tell when I'm really needed. And I can tell when I'm just filling in for the show. And where I feel like I'm a part of the show, I don't come anymore. Because my time and my life and the way I pour my soul out is way too valuable. I've got two kids at home that could really use a real mom. And so if I come and pour my heart out, I'm coming to do it not to be nice, but because I believe it's necessary. Reconciliation begins with a divine calling, a mandate from God. Reconciliation doesn't start with us, it starts with the Father. This is not a good idea, it's a God idea. And it then moves forward when we recognize that we have a need for people who don't look like us and who don't speak like us, who are different from us. The third thing I see in this text is this. Reconciliation requires what I'm calling intentional interaction between diverse people. Would somebody say intentional? Intentional. Intentional. Reconciliation doesn't just happen. We don't stumble into the kingdom. We got to have our minds set on the kingdom. Amen. We have to take intentional steps toward the kingdom. Look at what Jesus does. Jesus goes into Samaria and he sits down by a well. Now, in that culture, women were the people who drew water. So, at some point, women would have to come to that well. Now, true, it is an unlikely hour. It is 12 o'clock noon, and usually women drew water in the cool of the day, either early in the morning or in the evening, because no one would want to slop a bucket all the way up to the well in in the middle of the day when it's so hot. But at some point, women would gather at that place because that's where women frequented. Am I making sense? And this well wasn't in Jerusalem. This well wasn't in Galilee. This well wasn't in Capernaum. Where was this well? Samaria. Yes. So he sits down at a well in Samaria. Now I ask you, what's the probability that Jesus would meet a Samaritan woman? What you think? What you think? 90? I hear 100%. What do you think? I think if he sat there long enough, Greg... At some point, a woman from Samaria would show up at a well in Samaria. You see what I'm saying? He was intentional about where he sat down. He didn't sit down at the local temple. He sat down by the well. He wanted to have a conversation with a woman of Samaria. So it wasn't a surprise when a Samaritan woman showed up. Yes. And so, my brothers and sisters, for those of us who want to take what we heard seriously, we're going to have to be intentional about it. We're going to have to plop ourselves down by wells, amen, where we can have conversations and interactions with the people we say we want to meet. Yes. Yeah, you know where the well is. (laughs) Amen. I don't have to tell you where the well is. You know where it is near you. Jesus says you want to meet people different than you then sit somewhere different where you usually sit. Sit at a different cafeteria table. Sit at a different coffee shop. Go to a different movie theater. Amen. You say you want to meet different people. Well, Jesus says, well, then go where they are. 
do a little research and find out where they hang out and then just sit yourself down there precious <laughs> sit long enough and somebody will show up with whom you can have interaction I said in the previous services and I'll say again I have been talking about wanting to learn Spanish for so long now that my friends are tired of me I say some things in Spanish and, and at some point they're like, okay. So I say, yo aprendiendo habla español, meaning I'm learning to speak Spanish. So they've decided we're finished with this learning to speak Spanish thing. I and my husband are planning to go to Honduras and, and I'm going to be in Honduras for the summer, probably a month. And when I come back, I'm going to be speaking Spanish because if I intentionally plan to become a person who embraces the Latino culture, and God knows I want to do that, I believe I'm called to do that, then I'm going to have to intentionally sit myself down someplace where I'm gonna sound like a two-year-old, where I'm gonna to have to be on the bottom and not on the top, where I'm gonna be able to make sentences that'll probably have no more than four words at a time in them, where my little doctorate degree won't mean anything, and I'm gonna hope that somebody can show me how to make it to the bathroom and other little minor things in life. I will not be the big wheeler dealer person, and I won't be misreconciliation. I'll just be a thirsty traveler sitting down by the well who needs somebody to invest in my life so that I can learn what I say I wanna learn. Amen? Yeah. Amen. <laughs> And so to be intentional means to step out of our comfort zones, to be willing to go where people are. Oftentimes, not only do people say, uh, uh, um, uh, the, the first thing that I said, how, why, why, how can we get more people to be in our group? They also wonder, how can they come to us? And Jesus says, it's not about them coming to us. The real question is, how can I get my people to go to them? Amen. How can I get my people to go outside of this place? How can I get them to step out of their comfort zones where their language is not the primary language that everybody speaks, that their custom is not the one that they understand, where everybody doesn't think they're wonderful and that they're not the top dog or the biggest person in charge, that their education is not the thing that gives them some sense of superiority? How can I get my people to go be in a place where they're learners? How can I get them out of their comfort zones? How will they intentionally do that? Those of us who are intentionally attentional, we sit down by wells and people with water come there and we interact with them. Let me give you the last principle for this part of this sermon and then I'll come back, I promise. Lord willing, in the kingdom tarry, I'll show up in February. But the last thing I notice about people who become kingdom folks who take the river of life into places where it produces the healing of nations is this. Reconciliation requires risk-taking. I wish I could tell you that it wasn't going to hurt. I wish I could tell you that every time you did it, it was going to work out perfectly. When Jesus sat down by that well and that Samaritan woman showed up, she wasn't looking to see Jesus or anybody else, and she sure didn't expect to see a Jew in Samaria by the well. She had been hurt by life. She had been discriminated against and marginalized, and I think everything in her wanted to be alone when she came up to that well, which is why she came at such an ungodly hour. And she shows up there and she sees a Jew boy sitting at the well. I don't believe she clapped her hands <laughs> and called him blessed. And not only is he sitting in her neighborhood, he wants something. She could have been offended by his presence, 
and doubly offended by him asking for something. She could have put her hand on her hip and said, how dare you? How dare you? You Jews think you own everything. You Jews think that we live to serve you. Well, I'm not giving you anything. All of her hurt and all of her anger and the rage that had been stored up inside of her, she could have unleashed it on this one person who hadn't done anything to her, but he represented all of the people who had. And so Jesus takes a risk by being in that neighborhood in the first place, and he takes a risk by going further to ask for something. You might sit down by the well with the best of intentions and somebody will question your motives and wonder about your integrity and wonder what you're really doing there. I'll tell you this story. I worked with some college students and one of the best college students that I ever worked with was a guy named Fred. And just for the record, he happened to be white. Fred was one of the best students who had ever come to work with me and I loved his heart for the kingdom of God. He had taken some kids to go play basketball in the neighborhood, and he was on his way back to the house that I'd rented in northwest Pasadena where I was living at the time so that the students could all live together in Christian community. And three African-American teenage boys accosted him on his way back home. They surrounded him as he was bouncing his basketball, coming back up the street. And they said, what you doing in our neighborhood, white boy? And Fred said, yo, man, I, I don't want any trouble, man. I'm just, just, just playing ball, just going home. Yo, man, so why are you here? You think you can play ball, huh? And they harassed him, and they harassed him, and finally, as the energy of the crowd grew and those three guys began to get energy from each other, they started hemming in on him and moving him closer and closer to a wall, so much so that he couldn't even advance anymore. He couldn't bounce the ball anymore. He couldn't move forward anymore. And was he scared? Yeah, he was scared. He had taken a risk to be there that summer, and it looked like that risk was not working out. I was nowhere near where he was. I couldn't come rescue him. And so I don't know how this thing was supposed to end up. I didn't even know what was going on. But out of a third floor apartment window, a little girl yelled down, you better leave my friend alone. <laughs> God bless that little prophetess. <laughs> she and her mom came downstairs and they gave those boys what for? And they let him, them know that this is our friend. He's doing a good work in our neighborhood. He's tutoring kids, and don't you guys mess with him. You better go home to where you live and leave this boy alone. And they walked him back to the house where we were all living. There were no guarantees. That time it worked out in Fred's favor. But for about a good 10, 15 minutes, we didn't know which way that was going to go. And Fred had to endure the risk of being a kingdom builder. For those of us who take our dolls and go home when it doesn't go right, for those of us who take our G.I. Joes and quit when they call us everything but a child of God, the kingdom of God won't easily come for us. We'll have to be willing to step out of comfort zones. We'll have to be willing to get, let God put out an urgency in our hearts. We'll have to be willing to, to, to see the intentionality of our, of our movement in the earth, and we're going to have to take a risk we're going to have to take a risk. And so my brothers and sisters, I know it's time for me to quit and I will. But I just wonder if there's some people in this congregation who sense in their hearts, in their bosom, I'm called to be a person who crosses cultures. I'm called to be a person who builds bridges. If you're here, I just wonder if I could pray for you. I don't want you to come to the front. But just now, as 
those of us go into a prayerful attitude. If you want to, you can bow your heads. Great, feel free to join me on stage. But I just want to pray for kingdom builders. I do know that in this church, God plans to use this church particularly as a bridge. And I believe, therefore, he has called some people to join this church and be covenant members because they are bridge builders. And so would you identify yourself by simply standing on your feet before God and saying, I'm here because I believe I'm supposed to be a person who builds bridges and crosses cultures. Just the very act of your standing to your feet says to God, I recognize my call. I believe that my job when I show up is to loosen anointing, to commission bridge builders. And so, Lord Jesus, you see this, your army standing to their feet. You see them, Lord God, by their standing, saying to you they report for duty. And now I ask you to deploy them in the earth in the name of Jesus. I feel college students in this room, and I don't know where you're standing, but the college students who are bridge builders, I tell you, the Lord is going to bring the kingdom of God to campuses in this Twin Cities area and beyond. But God is going to loose college students in a massive way, and I sense a revival coming. And so, Lord God, for those who are college students, just college students right now, raise your hand if you're standing to your feet. There is an anointing coming to college campuses through Christian kingdom builders who are college students in this generation, and I bless them. You can put your hands down. Lord God, there's healing that's coming to neighborhoods in the name of Jesus because, oh God, of people who are going to take the risk to start hosting things in neighborhoods where people who don't generally get together start com communities together. They're going to start mingling together. I sense communion in people's backyards and communions around dinner tables. In the name of Jesus, Lord God, I loose diversity dinners. <laughs> in the name of Jesus, houses that are used strategically for the kingdom of God, every single person, oh God, I pray that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come through these bridge builders and through this church in the mighty name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.